0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is the brilliantly talented Christine Baranski. She is an actor with an incredible resume. She went to Juilliard, She was on Broadway in shows like The Real Thing, Rumors, and House of Blue Leaves. She's won two Tony Awards. On the hit sitcom Sybil, she played the title character's best friend, Marianne. She won an Emmy in the very first season. She is an iconic character actor with a distinctive look that commands your attention on the screen. And she is, and I look, I'm not using this term lightly, a legend. In 2009, she got a part on the CBS show The Good Wife. It's a legal and political drama that starred Juliana Margulies. Baranski played Diane Lockhart on the show, a partner at the firm that Margulies' character worked. Critics loved The Good Wife, millions watched it, and when the series wrapped, Baranski got her own spin-off, The Good Fight. Once again, critics loved it, millions watched it. The Good Fight just started running its sixth and final season. You can watch it on Paramount+. The Good Fight's a drama, as was its predecessor— But the good fight is also pretty funny. Like in this clip, which kicks off the show's fourth season, Diane just woke up in an alternate reality. President Hillary Clinton is in the middle of her first term in the White House. Polar bears are thriving again. The rainforest is saved. A cure for cancer is on the horizon. Diane, well, Diane is confused. And her co-workers are concerned.
0: Are you all right, Diane? Liz, I have never been better. Don't you know that cancer was cured?
1: Yes, but the administration is not telling us how or when.
0: Luca is worried about you. Should we be? No, no, no. I just, I had this weird dream. Luca said that Trump was president. How'd that go? Oh, my god. He kept calling Nazis very fine people. And he did a Senate campaign for a child molester. And he put children in cages. Why? Immigration policy and uh, anti-Semitism and racism were on the rise. And where were the Obamas during all this? They had an overall deal at Netflix. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Christine Baranski, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so, so happy to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be here. The Good Fight is such a wonderful show. It's also like uh, for... What you know, look, it's on a streaming service, but we'll call it a, a network television program. It's so deeply odd in that it lives in this world between just a a pretty straight prestige legal drama, a very high quality traditional uh, narrative television program. Um, the world the real world it has a deep interplay with the real world
0: or the unreal world now yeah. i would say <laughs> yeah
1: and then also sometimes sometimes really weird stuff happens like you talk to the ghost of Ruth Bader Ginsburg or whatever <laughs> <laughs> any
0: opportunity to work with Elaine May that was actually my idea not that the Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not my idea, but I thought, who can play it? And then I thought, oh my
1: God, Elaine May, that's that's history. It's a good venue for, you know, you or Wallace Shawn is in it. He's wonderful in it. Alan Cumming used to do it. Like these are performers with who bring so much. Uh, I don't know what the right word is. Verve? Does that seem
0: right? Well, there's Verve, but they're quirky. You know, yeah. these are mostly New York theater actors. They're all character actors. I mean, Dylan Baker played that utterly creepy guy. The wife killer. I, I, there was just a revolving door on brilliant uh, guest actors, and our series regulars were no slouches. And in the final... Final year, our final year, we got Andre Brower, who is really a marvelous actor, but he's damn funny. When you see season, what is it? Did we make it to ten? This is six, six, yeah. But I mean, he he's marvelous. It it was just uh, an embarrassment of riches, and the kings knew, especially with COVID. You see, all of these theater actors were were home; they couldn't work in the theater, but we were managing to work on film with, you know, very strict protocols, but we did go to work and we kept people safe. And that was true of the Gilded Age as well. We had to wear masks. We were tested every day, but we managed to do our work in front of a camera. And so all of these marvelous actors in both these shows really were available. And one of the great things about Uh, Good Wife, Good Fight was just—it was a repertory company for great actors and actresses, and they all did their turns, and they were judges and lawyers and and various victims, whatever. And, you know, it was—I will miss
1: that probably more than anything. Christine, you're a very serious actor, and you do a lot of serious acting in the show, but also— you know, I went on Twitter and said, Christine Baranski is coming on bullseye today. What should I ask her about? And sometimes to get it, to show up better on Twitter for people to talk to me about it, I'll go into the database of gifs that they have little animated gifs on Twitter. And if you type in Baranski into the database of animated gifs, it is a treasure trove of disapproving takes that, uh, Knows no end. <laughs> <laughs> the, the world of Christine Baranski on screen, giving looks. <laughs> <is>.
0: <laughs> Lady, Lady Disdain, isn't that what uh, Benedict calls Beatrice in Much Ado? Lady Disdain. Yeah, I've got, I've got some
1: attitudes. That's for sure. I call them attitudes to be fair, like it's not exclusively disapproving. There's a few like looking up and downs. There's some fantastic different, uh, but that is like, uh, that is the intersection of very serious acting because none of these are anything but, you know, character driven. Uh, It's not as though these are random things you're, you're throwing in to spice things up a little bit, but it also is like a, it's a very classical skill. I mean, it's like the kind of thing that it's the kind of thing that my commedia dell'arte teacher would have made us practice, you know?
0: <laughs> well, I, you know, Let's face it, I've been acting I went to Juilliard in nineteen seventy. On the way here I passed my alma mater and I thought, man, that's isn't is it possible it was fifty years ago. But I've played a lot of different roles, and of course you tend to get cast at what you're good at, and it seemed what I was good at was um, you know, women with attitude or or sophistication or kind of putting a certain top spin on a line reading, so it just went over the net exactly right, like Neil Simon or Tom Stoppard. And, and I I sort of refined that because you do tend to refine things when you get to do them over and over. But with the with a good fight, what I loved is, you know, I didn't start out. Diane didn't have these characteristics when I was cast. She was, you know, the head of the law firm along with, Will Gardner, uh, Josh Charles' character, and I think she was meant to be an antagonist to Alicia. And I think over the course of a year or so, the Kings discovered that I had a sense of humor, I had certain aspects to my personality that they decided to use, and by the time we did a spin-off of of Diane and made it the good fight. You know, you had scenes uh, with Diane kind of going crazy, living in the Trump era, where she, you know, laughed a lot. There was a, one whole episode where I was in court and I couldn't stop laughing.
1: What? What is this? What, what is it? What is she doing? Uh, your co-counsel is laughing. Is, am I missing something here? No, Your Honor, we've been stretched really thin recently. Oh, right! I heard about that whole baking soda scare. Damn. 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 Yeah, thank you, thank you, Your Honor. Is she all right? She just pleasantly surprised, Your Honor. Yeah. They
0: discovered that I had a great laugh, and they incorporated that into the character. So, um, I thought oh, over the course of thirteen years of playing Diane, I get, I got thanks to the writers and and the kings, I got to use a lot of the skill sets that I've acquired over the years, just doing, you know, all the things that I've done.
1: We've got so much more to get into with Christine Baranski. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Christine Baranski. She's an Emmy award-winning actor who starred on shows like The Good Wife, Sybil, and a bunch of Tony award-winning productions on Broadway. The Good Fight just kicked off its fifth and final season, which is streaming now on Paramount Plus. Let's get back into our conversation. You went to theater school at Juilliard. I did. What led you to think that uh, you could and should go to theater school at Juilliard.
0: Well, my grandmother. I, li- I lived with my uh, paternal grandmother, and she actually was an actress in the Polish theater in Buffalo. It was rather like the Yiddish theater in New York. It was. It, we lived in a Polish Catholic community, and there was a very strong Polish section to Buffalo. And they and they, my grandmother and grandfather both were actors and did plays in Polish and some of them in English. But I lived with a very vivacious woman who, you know, she was very expressive and she loved the arts. And my father took me to see singers and dancers um, that were a Polish folk troupe. And so I, I developed a feeling for, like, the magic of performing arts and people who were that way. And I actually... I was quite shy when I was young. It's amazing. I became an actor because I really was very, very shy uh, up until about the sixth grade. And then anyway, I began to sort of come out of myself. And I started doing plays in high school like so many people. I went from being backstage and helping out to, you know, standing in the wings thinking, God, that really looks like fun. And I got uh, cast in a few things, and then I, um, while I was in high school, uh, I, I read about a, a program sponsored by the New York State Council on the Arts, and it was a theater workshop for kids from all over the city, and I auditioned for that, and I got in, and suddenly I was going across town to the University of Buffalo to be in this workshop with kids who were not Polish Catholic kids they were there were black kids, there were Jewish kids there were We were doing African drumming and African dancing and improvisation and street theater and this was the late 60s so you can imagine we were doing a lot of anti war stuff. Anyway, then I became part of an experimental theater company by the time I was a senior in high school. It was called The Company of Man, and we performed in the old Pierce Arrow plant. And I I think my first real professional play, I was in a two-character play called The Master, and I actually wore an American flag as a mini dress with mm-hmm. white go-go boots. Mm-hmm. And I actually <laughs> got a really good review from the university school. School paper, anyway. So I'm already filled with excitement and passion, and I I think I had enough people, including my high school drama teacher and the teachers uh, who were uh, doing this workshop. Enough people told me you should really do this. That I I I did read about the Juilliard School in the Buffalo Evening News, and I th- just thought, well, that would be my dream. So I uh, I auditioned and. I hadn't heard from them at all, and I'd already heard from Boston University that I was accepted to their theater department, and I'd gotten rejected at NYU, and then I had the courage to call Juilliard and ask, you know, and they said, well, we're, oh, I could do the voice, but, um, you know, I'm terribly sorry, you've been waitlisted, you have this speech problem um impediment that we feel is very difficult to correct now it's possible because of you know the space between your two front teeth that you know air is going through there and creating a slight whistle <laughs> but perhaps if you had your teeth capped and went for speech therapy so basically that's what I did my mother who was really could not afford to do this, but she she got my uh, she took me to um, an orthodontist, and I got my two front teeth capped, and I went for quite a few months of speech therapy, and then I re-auditioned. So, you know, it's a it's a fun story, but it was uh, kind of thrilling because I I had to show up months later and uh, go go into the the office of John Hausman who was a very formidable man um he was the profet- law professor in paper chase if you remember he was that's the way he was he was really intimidating and and the speech teacher and the voice teacher they were all there and they handed me a page full of it was a and a paragraph of nothing but s's and and i i had to do this and um God, it was just uh, when, when I finished the the voice and speech teacher. Her back was to me, and she was staring out the window. And John Hausman said to her, "Well, Elizabeth, what do you think?" And Elizabeth Smith just nodded her head. She didn't say anything. And then Hausman said, "Congratulations." you've just been accepted at the Juilliard School. <laughs> it was pretty thrilling stuff. <laughs> for You know, I was 18. It was it, it. still is thrilling for people when they get into Juilliard. They say it's just the most thrilling thing because it's like winning the lottery. It's actually rather like winning the lottery because what are the chances you get in? They What did they have, 24 kids from all over the country? And now the competition's even worse. Um, exponentially worse. I, I was only group three. They had just started the drama division. But it still remains one of the great moments, one of the great days of my life. And I got great training from all of my teachers
1: at Juilliard. I was reading a New York Times profile from, of you from 10 or 20 years ago. And there was a late paragraph with a sentence at the end was like four-fifths of the way through this story that just casually mentioned that your career had been shaped by the fact that you weren't beautiful. <laughs> now, <laughs> I was, first of all, I was like, well, that's a catty remark, New York Times feature writer. But I think I was. I also will say, as someone who may have to some extent Romantically imprinted upon you as a teenager watching Sybil, I was surprised to hear that description. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, it led into a quote of you talking about not looking like a movie star. Did you feel that way about yourself from? You know, I mean, to start your career at Juilliard with with I had to fix my teeth. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. I and I was. <laughs> I, I'm glad you brought that up. I, this was the style section of the New York Times, and it, I happened to be with the writer was Ka- Kathy Horan, and she was she wrote you know the fashion stuff, and it was the day or the day after Elizabeth Taylor <laughs> passed away, and so there were all these images of of Elizabeth Taylor, and I think all I said to her was, I never got a job, an acting job. Because I was beautiful, I got acting jobs maybe because I was sexy or foxy or had a certain kind of what you call verve or a kind of energy or, you know,
1: stage I presence. Confirm, but I can I, confirm those things.
0: I don't—I didn't ever—and I said in a way it was good because I didn't have a shelf life, you know. I didn't—it was like once that, that look was gone, it would be, oh, I don't have a career anymore, because it was never a commodity, but unfortunately, the the title then of the piece was "I Was Never Beautiful," which kind of implied that I was not happy with the way I looked. And in fact, I think I'm perfectly fine. I think I'm attractive. Am I Liz Taylor? No, uh, who is? And back then, movie stars were like Liz Taylor or Sophia Loren that you didn't see. You know, by the 70s, they were making quirky movies. But I had never imagined myself as, you know, wanting a film career or or that kind of I'm up on the silver screen. What I wanted when I left Buffalo was to be a theater actress. And I, I played beautiful women on stage. You know, I played attractive women on stage. And then, as you say, Sybil, you know, Marianne was, you know, she was, pretty great looking, but, you know, I, I think the point was that I I didn't, it, it was sort of a blessing. I didn't, as I grew older, I I became in some ways more comfortable with myself and the, with the way I look uh, because it was never like an issue. I'm going to lose my youth. I'm going to lose my beauty. I mean, I just turned 70 and I've never been busier. So, you know, it's it's been a continuum for me to just keep working and playing different roles. And Diane Lockhart, I think, very attractive woman, well-dressed, well-spoken. But I didn't get that role because, oh, well, you know, she's, you know, I didn't get the role because of my looks. I think I got it because of my resume and because of, um, I mean, she needed to be attractive, certainly. But, you know, you know what I'm saying. It wasn't the sine qua non of my career.
1: I was certain you were going to say, here I am, 70 years old, and I've never—you start. You said, I've never been, to say you've never been more successful, or I thought you were just going to say, I've never been hotter.
0: <laughs> well, that too. I mean, I—, I, I it's not for me to say but i do i in in our final season i i'm part of a love triangle i've two men in my life that i have to decide which one and i've you know had this marvelous marriage with gary cole who's such a guy guy and we had a great on-screen chemistry and people loved the fact that this was a marriage between two people well over 50 it was still Kind of hot for each other and and you know they didn 't agree politically, but clearly something was clicking and um, so I was happy to have that uh, to contribute to all of the women over fifty who think life is just over i my life just kept getting better and better, my personal life, and I think diane 's was a very vital active professional life and her personal life was complicated. But, you know, she wasn't sitting home alone and, you know, crying into her scotch, some bitter woman worrying that she's, you know, childless and 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 that she's, you know, got no personal life.
1: Diane was pretty active. We've got plenty more to talk about with Christine Baranski. After the break, she'll tell us about her relationship with the great Stephen Sondheim and how she connected with him many times as a collaborator. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Which animal has the most bones? Why isn't Pluto a planet? Why are bees electrically charged? Let's find out together on our show, Let's Learn Everything, where we learn anything and everything interesting. My name's Caroline, and I studied biodiversity and conservation. My name's Tom, and I studied computer science and cognitive... Blah, 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 blah. Mm, did you? <laughs> 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 and my name's Ella, and I studied stem cells and regenerative medicine. On our show, we do as much research as you would for a class, but we don't get in trouble for making each other laugh subscribe to let's learn everything every other thursday on maximum fun this is bullseye i'm jesse thorne i'm here with christine baranski one of the stars of sybil and currently the star of the good fight at the beginning of the pandemic i was dealing with some real tough stuff in addition to the tough stuff of the pandemic And there weren't a lot of things that broke through to me enough to feel like they mattered in culture. Um, And one of the things that did was the streaming Stephen Sondheim tribute in which you participated.
0: Oh, that did break through, didn't it?
1: It really felt like it meant something, you know? Um, I think partly because, you know, Sondheim had passed away in his 90s. And so it was an extraordinary loss, but also one that everyone and, you know, the greatest genius of American musical theater and a vibrant presence, but also one that like, I I think people had thought about, well, what will happen? when that happens you know like it 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 wasn't as though uh it, it, it wasn't as though he died at 27 in a motorcycle accident and so it was this extraordinary event that meant so much to people when they were hurting so bad and was so painful but also maybe people were in a way ready to have a celebration of his life you know what i mean
0: Totally, and and uh, there was a acute poignancy to. I mean, every decade he'd have a massive Stephen Sondheim's birthday celebration concert, uh, but his ninetieth one that it would take place at a time when people couldn't be together. You saw all these great performers alone in their apartments somehow singing, looking out a window, singing in the bathroom, singing, I was singing, Ladies Who Lunch in a Back Office. And it was so poignant, I think, because he writes so deeply about human loneliness. You know, the song, Being Alive. That's, you know, he hit on that, that deep inner loneliness and sense of reaching reaching out, trying to connect. And somehow, because it was done virtually, there wasn't that, you know, sense of buzz in the audience and we're singing a showstopper and then one great performer in a red dress brings down the house and then there's another great performer. This was just so quiet and uh, haunting and when it was shown he was sitting with his beloved Jeff in in his living room in Connecticut and he was watching all of these performers that have performed his music and it was just a love letter from all of us to Steve and uh, I agree with you there was a a, a real Resonance there that I wouldn't have expected in a virtual situation. I mean, when I heard about it, I thought, "Oh my God, how are we how are we gonna do this?" You know, and I always wanted to sing "Ladies Who Lunch," and I never got to play that role. And then Patty was gonna do it, and I went, "Well, that's the last word. First, there's Elaine Stritch, then there's Patty. I ain't gonna do that." And so I thought, "Wait a minute, maybe if I just did part of the song, and we." Divided in three because Meryl was like, "Oh my God, what what am I going to sing?" and and so we split it in three parts. And so it wasn't that kind of showstopper of one person carrying the song. It was just the three of us who adored Steve, who actually took him out the year before for dinner, and said, "Steve, we've got to do this once a year." And instead of going out to dinner, the three of us were in our Individual homes recording this song and then serving it up to him (laughs) in his living room. It was, and we all, and the three of us just thought, oh, okay, this is going to end our careers. This is so bad. I mean, we were all just doing our individual parts. We didn't know how it would be edited. We were just listening in and, you know, to to the orchestration in our earbuds and we all had to howl that Now drink to that and my grandchildren upstairs trying to sleep and grandma's howling and doing primal screaming, singing Ladies who lunch over and over. It just was it was very funny and, you know, doing it we just didn't know If it was going to work, we just knew it was going to go out there, you know, out there in the world, in that crazy virtual world where millions of people might (laughs) be privy to it. So the fact that it it went well and he was thrilled and it just was, it was such a final love letter to him from all of us in the Broadway community.
1: Let's hear a little bit of... <laughs> that finale with, now I gotta say, look, if you're gonna go up on stage with two other people to sing this iconic song, right? First, you gotta deal with, well, Meryl Streep is not just a great actor, but <laughs> one of the most famous movie stars of our time, <laughs> um, right? And, but I feel like if it was me and I was you, I'd be like, but you know what? I'm better for this than Meryl Streep, no matter how good she is. So she not that she's wrong for it, but you're like, I was born to do this, and so that'll be fine. But it's the Audra McDonald part, which is like when she sings her verse, which is the third verse. She's, we said, such, give it- an,
0: she's such an extraordinary singer. <laughs> I know. We said, "Let give the high parts to Audra. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> give give her the big stuff. She'll lay into it. She'll land it. We'll just be funny with our, our glasses and our attitudes.
1: <laughs> like you know, Elaine Stritch was one of the greatest. Geni- her performance of that song is one of the truly one of the best things in the history of American culture. Uh, but like, she can't sing like Audrey McDonald. You know what I mean? <laughs> so anyway, this is the end of the. This is the end of that performance. So
0: here's to the girls on the everybody tries. Look into their eyes
1: and you'll see what they know.
0: Everybody dies. The toast to that invincible bunch. Dinosaurs surviving the crunch. Let's Let's hear it from (laughs) <laughs> I got goosebumps remembering that.
1: <laughs> it's such an incredible song. I mean, it's so funny, obviously, you know, um, and there's a thousand, you know, there's a there's a thousand moments of uh, Sondheim words where you're like, oh, God, I come up with a word like that there. Mm. But I think that, um, you know, like a lot of songs in that show, It is, you know, there is this thing that it is, which is like, it's about brassy dames. It's about women not who are resilient and um, making the world work for them as best as they can. It's also about the fact that their resilience is in the face of a world that will not bend to their will, and in the face of mortality.
0: Oh, oh, indeed, it's it's a, the feeling of feeling useless. Where do you where do you put your energy? You know, spend your husband's money, and you go and hear Mahler, and you you know you affect an attitude to as a as a. As an armor, you know that tough attitude, and it's it just hides deep deep loneliness and a, a sense of um, isolation and and purposelessness. but you know as again that that he spoke of that and it's a deeply painful song. So many of his songs are rooted in that deep pain or longing, and yet. The lyrics will like move you past that. He'll 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 just channel it into wit and acerbity and kind of brilliant smartness. And I think that um, a mistake that's made often with Sondheim is being over emotional with it. You you don't need to. It's like Shakespeare. You don't you don't need to actually work that hard at it, you need to be clear about... You You need to trust the words of it and uh, have all of that other stuff underneath, all that pain, all that ambiguity, whatever. But uh, I've seen Sondheim's songs ruined when, when the performer cries through the whole song or is so angry that you can't even he- understand the lyrics. Um, yeah. But anyway, I I had the pleasure of uh doing quite a f quite a bit of Sondheim, even though I was, never did anything on Broadway, but uh he was a, a wonderful person to find yourself in a room with, in a rehearsal room with.
1: <laughs> I read that you uh showed up to his house with a pizza a couple times during the Pandemic before he passed no,
0: away. No, <laughs> we we threat. We Marilyn and I wanted to visit him because we all lived in Connecticut, and I s- a, a few times we had dinner with him. And then COVID hit, and was like, "What? We can't even. You know, how are we going to do this?" And I remember writing to Stephen saying, "Look, Marilyn and I will bring pizza. We'll sit out in your yard. We'll be miles away from you. Can we just like see you?" <laughs> And it turned out that we were actually able to go to a local watering hole and, and have a nice dinner. Um, but he had to be so careful, of course, during the whole quarantine. So but we, we had some marvelous dinners before he, he passed away. I was really happy because Meryl and I did Into the Woods and Mama Mia uh and so there was the Sondheim connection, and he was a neighbor. So we had some wonderful evenings. I'm happy to say, got to know him much later in his life. But he didn't scare me near nearly as much as he did through most of my career.
1: <laughs> you know, he had become somewhat more frail. I imagine <laughs> you had to know you could take him in a fight.
0: Well, I wouldn't say he was. He was. His mind was always formidable. I think. His, his manner could be off-putting, he could seem abrupt, but I'd been in a rehearsal hall enough times with him to realize that really what he was was utterly exacting. It was his, his genius was really how much he cared about details and getting a syllable, a note, exactly right. What, what, what is that word? What is that moment? What is that note? is exactly right and utterly meticulous and if you asked him about anything why this and not that he could give you an answer he he you know he really worked he was an, a very thorough all oh, craftsman and when he was in the rehearsal hall with you he wanted to help he could be you know because he was steve and 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 his manner you know he had that actually marvelously low resonant voice and when he spoke he had really a kind of incredible authority and and you know that face with that hawk eye that kind of like looked at you a certain way but actually he was very much a collaborator He wanted to help his performers. And when I did, um, I'm still here, I did the concert version at City Center. And he gave me a wonderful note. He said, you don't have to work that hard at that. This is, you know, so he, he, he encouraged performers to be simple and truthful. And above all, he encouraged performers not to worry that much about how you sounded. He didn't care that much. Which, you know, the success of Elaine Stritch, no, she couldn't sing Ladies Who Lunch like Audra McDonald. You could argue it's not a song that you need to sound beautiful. You need the thinking and the attitude to be utterly precise and come from a deep place. And that's what he valued most was, was the acting of his songs.
1: I want to ask you a frivolous question. To fit it in before we run out of time, which is, I I have some buddies that work on late night comedy shows. Ooh. Something that I've I've heard them talk about is before Don Rickles passed away, when Don Rickles would come in to do the show, even though they're all, you know, seasoned comedy people with many of them former standups or current standups, and you know, certainly comedy writers who've all. All very jaded. Everyone just really wanted Don Rickles to call them a hockey puck one time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like every and Don Rickles was he was very great by all accounts. He was great about making sure everyone got a chance to be called a hockey puck. <laughs> um, and I wonder if uh, you have encountered your own in your own life uh, the expectation that as you move through your actual human personal and professional life uh, that there are people surrounding you who you can tell just need to one time briefly, Receive a disapproving glance from you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think I did it with Elon Musk, didn't I? Well, he's earned it. (laughs) I know. So funny. Uh, Yeah, he got the lady disdain
1: look, that's for sure. (laughs) He got a a full stank eye. (laughs)
0: Well, what's so funny is I play this character on Gilded Age, who who that's exactly how she would have looked at Elon Musk. It's the old money versus new money, and I had sort of a Tom Brown cape on it was a marvelous <laughs> male female kind of white tie thing, but it was a cape, and it looked like I had this black cape, and I was giving him this glare and uh, it's it's just a very funny photograph i have it in my bedroom now my my kids gave it to me as a mother's day present <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure i've looked at my own children with in in that way many times <laughs>
1: Well, Christine Baranski, I've taken up too much of your time, but I sure sure appreciate getting to talk to you. I I love your work so much.
0: Oh, Uh, thank you for all the things you got into. We covered a lot of ground. Thank you for being so thorough and thoughtful, and and, uh, it's a pleasure, real pleasure. Thank you.
1: I didn't even make you sing any Polish folk songs, Christine. (laughs) I thought about it. Next time. Christine Baranski, the sixth season of The Good Fight is streaming now on Paramount+. Plus. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where, look, I don't know if you've heard, but it's been hot. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help sometimes from Mara Davis. Special thanks this week to the folks at CDM Studios, also in New York, for recording the legendary Christine Baranski. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is Huddle Formation, written and recorded by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and Memphis Industries for sharing that with us. Go buy a Go Team album they rule. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us, follow us, and we will share with you our interviews in those places. You can then share them with others. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.